Take your Bibles, if you would, this morning and turn to the book of Acts, chapter 9. And we're continuing our study through this book. And uh, we're in this last week, the latter half of this chapter for Mother's Day. We're going to continue in our expository study, uh, these ideas uh, here in a row. So, look with me in the first verse of this ninth chapter of the book of Acts. We're going to read a number of verses today to get the entirety of the story, verses 1 through 31. And the Bible says, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest. And desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way. Now, this way was a, a name that the Christians had given to themselves. They were followers of the way. And so that's what he's referring to here. That any followers there um, of that way, that whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth, and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why, perse why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? Which in this means sir or master. And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he trembled and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Now, there is an abrupt change. And the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, that was the one he was headed, Damascus, and that shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither did he eat or drink. And there was a certain disciple of Damascus named Ananias. And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise. And go into the street, which is called Straight. And by the way, Straight Street still exists in Jerusalem to this day. I'm sure it's not the exact same street, but it, there's still that same nomenclature today. And inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he prayeth. And hath seen in a vision a man named Ananias, or he's seen you, coming in and put his hand on him that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to the saints of Jerusalem. In other words, Lord, do you know what you're asking me to do? And here he hath authority from the chief priests to bind all that call on thy name. But the Lord said unto him, Ananias, go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house and putting his hand on him said, now, now this word here, brother Saul, comes quickly. But can you imagine, this is probably the first time Saul has heard a Christian speak uh, to him directly. And his first words were brother. Now you talk about a transition. And he said, brother Saul. The Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest, 
hath sent me that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales, and he received sight forwith and arose and was baptized. And when he had received meat, he was strengthened. Then was Saul certain days with the disciples which were at Damascus. And straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. But all that heard him were amazed and said, Is not this he that destroyed them, which called on his name in Jerusalem, and came hither for that intent, that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased the more in strength, and confounded the Jews which dwelt in Damascus, proving that this is very Christ. And after many days were fulfilled, the Jews took counsel to kill him. But their lane await was known of Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples, and this would be those of the followers of Christ, not the twelve, but just disciples, took him by night and let him down by the wall in the basket. And when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed to join himself to the disciples. In other words, he, he wanted to become friends with the disciples in Jerusalem, but they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. And that's fair, isn't it? Knowing this guy before, watching him consent to the stoning of Stephen and other things that he had done, these people were reluctant. But Barnabas, verse 27, took him and brought him to the apostles and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way, and that he had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. And he was with them coming in and going out at Jerusalem, where they were now getting acquainted. And he spake boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Grecians, the people he would soon one day go become a missionary to. But they went about to slay him, which when the brethren knew, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him forth, this is back home, to Tarsus. Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord, and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost were multiplied." Our Holy Father, I pray the next few moments. Lord, as we consider this length of, uh, of Scripture, uh, Lord, and, and the transformative miracle that you did here, that, Lord, it would grant us hope that nothing, no one, and no circumstance is beyond your ability to, Lord, change it, to heal it. And, and Lord, so I pray you'd give us this faith in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for standing for that length of time. After appearing to the disciples for 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus, before he ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father, he gave this commission. He said, But ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Of course, we know this in part, along with Matthew 28, as the Great Commission. But it's more than that. It's also a prophetic statement of things that would one day come to pass. That God, through the agency of the disciples and yet other unnamed individuals, would take the gospel to all the world. In chapters 1 through 7 of the book of Acts, uh, there's this communication, this articulation of God doing just that, of using the disciples to take His gospel, to spread it in Jerusalem and into the regions of Judea. 
And we see the church growing here from initially the, the, the 12 to 120, then to thousands and quite possibly tens of thousands of believers in these first days after the resurrection of Christ and this witnessing of the disciples. In chapter 8, we see the witness of Philip expanding into the regions of Samaria. And this was just a region beyond Jerusalem to the lost brothers of Israel. And Philip was used of the Lord in a supernatural way to appear to a man we call the Ethiopian eunuch who just happened to be reading the book of Isaiah. And uh, Philip was transported there. This man was saved and he was baptized. And then we see Philip going on to uh, share the gospel with other cities there in Samaria. And so the gospel is expanding. And now in chapter 9, chapter 9 makes the necessary preparations for the gospel to advance to the Middle East and into Asia and into the rest of the, the known or Greek world. And it makes this preparation by introducing to us a second time an individual whose name is Saul. And Saul is a man who originates from what we call today modern Turkey. It's a city called Tarsus. And, and Tarsus was a chief city at that time. It, it wouldn't have the, the notoriety of, of maybe a Rome, but it, it was a city of great education. It, it was a city of enlightenment. It, it was a city where, um, of great trade and commerce. And this is where Saul was from, from this city. But in this second introduction, we still see the same Saul we saw in chapter 7. Now, I'm going to use words here, and I'm not using words for hyperbole. I think these are words that fit the description of Paul and his disposition and attitude this time. Paul, in many ways, was a crazed man. He was a man on a passionate mission that was incredibly misguided. Paul, we know, post-salvation, had a zeal that was unparalleled. He was a man of incredible passion and drive. And in ways, he was still that man before his salvation. He was a man of great drive. He was a man of great passion, a man of great zeal. But in this moment, it was all in antagonism to Christianity and the Lord. He is still, as he was at the feet of Stephen, he is still on this crazed mission to destroy the expanding church of Jesus Christ. In chapter 8, where Saul, having been commissioned by the Pharisees to arrest Christians, was there uh, at the stone of Stephen. No doubt he listened to Stephen preach. Uh, and, and, and despite all that, his heart was not touched. And the clothes were laid at the feet, Stephen's clothes at the feet of the, not yet the Apostle Paul, but of Saul of Tarsus. And that means he probably had and bore some responsibility directly in Stephen's death, giving his vote that that would happen. And so his heart is still yet unchanged. He's still this kind of crazed man. The Bible uses this word in chapter 8, verse 3, he was wreaking havoc. Now, just think about that moment. This, these are not words of hyperbole again. If someone was to walk in the doors of Eastland Baptist Church and create havoc, what would that look like? What would be chaos? It would be this extraordinary scene. It'd be people flying in every direction. In this case, it would mean massacre and destruction. And Paul was creating that on the church in Jerusalem. He's on this vendetta to destroy this new work of Christ. He believed with all of his work, this was an unholy uprising that was that existed to distort and pervert historic Judaism. And he believed with all of his heart that it was probably done at the propagation of Satan. He was a 
passionate, crazed man bent on destroying the disciples of Christ. And this word havoc is so strong, it's only used twice else in the entire Bible, once in, in, in the Old Testament, once in the New, and the idea of ravaging something, destroying a house or a vineyard, or, or the body being torn apart. And this is what this man was doing to the church. Paul was a murderer in, in every sense. He was a separator of families. He was responsible for uprooting um, entire communities. We, we read in the text, again, quite, quite quickly, that, that he desired to, to go to Damascus 150 miles away. And the reason there were so many Christians and Jews there is because they were dispersed by this man himself. He knew they had fled there. And now it wasn't enough to uproot them from their homes and businesses and their families. He is now going to chase them there to bring them back to see them punished. He did this to men, and he did this to, to women, wreaking havoc on the church of God. He was an evil man. I know we're not used to thinking about Paul, but this is Saul I'm talking about. And Saul was an evil man with no moral or ethical boundaries when it came to his willingness to stop the way from spreading any further. He was a man not led by reason, and in many ways, not by his own incredible intellect. He had no, no compassion, evidently, at this time. He was just filled with prejudice and hate and a vitriolic, poisoned heart bent on stopping what was happening in Jerusalem. And in chapter 9, we are simply reacquainted with this same mad man. Still, as the Bible says, these words in chapter 9, breathing out threatenings and slaughter. Those are strong words. Evidently responsible not only for the death of Stephen, but other Christians as well, as he would intimate later in the New Testament. He was in every way against the Lord. His passion was so great that he was not content to simply scatter Christians out of Jerusalem, but rather, as I've already mentioned, he was going to pursue them. And I don't know the exact distance to Damascus. I, I'm going to guesstimate between 100 and 150 miles away. He was going to go that far to simply bring back people he had already forced out to come back and face imprisonment or worse. And these are my words. I believe that Paul or Saul was a man entrenched. He was entrenched. He was entrenched in his Judaism. He was entrenched in his hate and anger. He was entrenched in his purposes to destroy the works of Jesus. He was a man guilty, uh, uh, as guilty as the, the Pharisees were of the blood of Jesus who initiated his death. And this man is equally guilty as those men. But <laughs> he was not beyond the reach of the grace of God. And there comes a smile. We learned in verse number three that he was on his way on this journey to Damascus. And on that journey, we all, we all know the story. We've all heard, you know, the, the story of the Damascus Road experience. He had an encounter with Jesus Christ himself. The Shekinah glory of the Lord blinded his eyes and knocked him to the ground. This was a way of humbling Saul. And Paul heard Jesus speak audibly, confronting him and his behavior. And for emphasis, he said twice, Saul... Saul, like I'm trying to get your attention at the light and the knocking the ground isn't enough. 
He said, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Now, we, we don't know what's flashing through the mind of this man, but no doubt he's thinking, this, this, this can't be Jesus. And he asks, well, you, who are you, Lord? Who art thou? And he said, I'm Jesus. And in these words, whom thou persecutest. He said, it's hard, isn't it, Saul, for you to kick against the pricks or the goad? You may have heard the term ox goad before. That's be a more familiar term. An ox goad is um, something that in kind is still used today. Oxen were stubborn creatures. Donkeys were stubborn creatures. And to get them the direction they needed to go, a long stick was used that was rounded at one end and had a point on the end. And you would often poke the oxen in the direction you wanted to go. You would really, from the backside, just poke them. And the more you fought against the pricks or the goad, the, the more discomforting it was. That makes sense, doesn't it? So evidently there's something that's going on in Paul's mind that was, that was already agitating him about who he was. You know, listen, bad men probably know for the most part they're bad. He, he had witnessed Christians in their faithful behavior. He, 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 he was there when Stephen died. It's quite possible he even had heard the Lord Jesus Christ speak. It's like the Lord said, Paul, this is enough of you fighting against the way I'm trying to lead you, what I want for you. And in that moment, and in this, this instantaneous change, Paul becomes a part of the brotherhood that he was trying to dismantle and destroy. And he says, Lord, what will you have me to do? Those words demonstrate submission, a yieldness, a repentance, a change of heart that would be demonstrated in the years to come. And it's that moment Paul became what is described for us in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. In one encounter with Christ, Paul's mind and heart were changed. His relationships, his life purpose, those all changed. It would be true that Paul would not forget the man he was. He often struggled in his writings in Galatians and Romans and other places. He knew that he was the chief of sinners. He, he, he often brought to account the evil things that he had done, but he knew that grace was bigger than all his sins. In great humility and thankfulness, the chief of sinners was saved, never to be the same again. From that point, Paul was led by his companions on into Damascus. He was taken to the house of a man named Justice where he began to meditate on all that had just happened. Three days he fasted. Three days he prayed. And then God spoke to the disciple, a man named Ananias. Can you imagine? We read these stories so quickly. And God appears to Ananias and says, hey, there's a guy in this home of a man named Justice. And I want you to go there and pray for him. And Ananias, sure, Lord. What's his name? Uh... <laughs> the Lord didn't pause like I might. Uh, I want you to go pray for this guy named Saul of Tarsus. What? Yeah, go, I want you to go pray for Saul of Tarsus. He's blind. We've met on this Damascus road. I'm going to use him in a great way, but I want you to pray for him. And it's not said in the text. And I, I want you to go initiate him into the brotherhood. And so Ananias says, okay, Lord. And he goes and he prays for Saul. It's like scales, a medical term from Luke who's a physician, falls from his eyes. And Paul can see. And the first thing he hears is Brother Saul. I'll tell you, on another time, we could spend a lot of time talking about men like Ananias and uh, Barnabas because the role they played is, is extraordinary. 
But these men were used of God. And minus them, we, we may have never known about the Apostle Paul. But he does what the Lord has asked him to do. And Saul, wasting no time, um, we could call him Paul now, begins preaching in the very city that he went to go persecute Christians in, in Damascus. Now, the Bible says and describes an indeterminate amount of time, but we know from the book of Galatians, he describes that period as three years. So, Paul now stays in the city that he went to persecute Christians and he begins preaching. And combining his new insight with his Old Testament knowledge, which is already proficient beyond all his peers, he begins preaching and confounding every Jew and all the Greeks who heard him. He spent time with the disciples. He listened to their eyewitness accounts of Christ. And in time, though, the Jews and the Greeks had enough there. And so a plot was hatched to kill Paul. He had to flee for his life. And of course, this time we know he goes to Jerusalem. He goes to Jerusalem and he gets the same response that probably Ananias had. He wants to meet these disciples. Hey, I'm one of you. And they're like, no way. The last time we saw you in this city, you were consenting to the death of one of our own, Stephen. They would not receive him minus um, Barnabas intervening and saying, Hey, I, I've, I've watched this guy for three years. I'm telling you, he's a believer. He's on fire. He loves the Lord. He had an encounter with the Lord, just like you all have in a different way. He, he is a disciple. And these men got together. They began to share stories. And they began their endeavor to serve the Lord together. And of course, that came to an end fairly abruptly. Saul, evidently, or Paul, was evidently quite the firebrand. And he was very passionate, maybe more than all the other disciples combined. And so he created a commotion in the city again. And a, a, a death threat came. And he had to go back home to Tarsus, where he remained again for a number of years before he would go on his missionary journeys that are recorded for us the book of Acts that we're going to get to in time. I, I want us to stop here for a moment. And there's so much we could talk about. But I'm looking at the big picture thoughts here in the book of Acts. And, and I want us to focus for a few moments this morning on the transformation of Saul into the incredible Christian that we know as the Apostle Paul. And I, I want this to be a hopeful thought for us today. And I want us to think about this, okay? I want to make this applicable to everyone in this room. I'm going to tell you, if Saul can be saved and turned into Paul, who we all revere, love, respect, then I'm going to submit to you that there is probably no circumstance in your life, no person that you know in such a, maybe a, a difficult way that is beyond the reach and the help and the hope of God. Now, we're talking about salvation here, but I'm going to submit to you that there's nothing beyond the reach of God. As the title suggests, which I'm glad they got all that on the, on the screen, never underestimate God's ability um, to change and transform the world, people, individuals. Think about Saul for a moment. Here was a man from his youth trained up to be a Pharisee. Now, this wasn't a regular education. This was an education of educations boarding on indoctrination. And he wasn't just trained by any professor. He was trained by Gamaliel, one of the greatest, one of the two greatest of all he Hebrew rabbis. And the Bible says that he excelled all his peers. He wasn't just a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I mean, true believer, no more than the Apostle Paul. I mean, this man was rooted and grounded in his faith of Judaism. 
He was trained in his religion and he, and he would have been a fundamentalist extreme in that he would oppose any change. No jot nor tittle could change for the Apostle Paul. He had a heart that went from passion to rage against what he saw as an unholy cause in Christianity. Because of his lifestyle, and you can't help psychologically this to happen, he became hardened by the murder and, and, and the dragging of men and women to prison, separating families. That does something to the heart and to the soul. Paul was at the polar opposite end of everything that it maybe were required of heart to become a Christian. But he was still saved. And the question is how, and, and we know the why, but how and why? I can safely say that Paul was not interested in Christ when Christ met him. I, I, I just want to lay the groundwork here. He wasn't interested in Christ. He, he probably had heard more about Christ than, than many Christians had heard in their lifetime. He wasn't searching. He wasn't looking. He wasn't interested. His heart wasn't becoming soft in process. He wasn't persuaded by argument. And here's a man who listened to Stephen speak. He, he, he hadn't come to some low place in his life. On the contrary, he had received letters of the Pharisees. He had to feel like a big guy doing a big thing. He was at the height of his career as a, as a Pharisee. He was not moved by heartbreak. He had none in his life save what he was causing in others. His life wasn't in dire consequence. He was saved because he had an encounter with Christ. Now, granted, Paul's encounter was dramatic and unique. But at the crux of his salvation and his change was that here was a man whom God met. Now, you and I don't probably have, didn't meet Christ in a blinding light of Jesus' kind of glory. But I'm telling you, millions have met him in his word and his truth. People have met Christ through preaching, through reading, in the dark night of travail when all hope was gone. Others have met him in study and in reflection. And others in times of dis disorientation and desperation. But listen, the only way to become a Christian is to meet Christ. But here's the thought, and I'm kind of funneling to. The how of, of this man's salvation was that he met Christ, but he was saved because Christ, and I'm going to use this word for a moment, because grace came to him. He didn't go to grace. Look up here for a second. Because grace came to him. Ephesians 2, we are saved by grace through faith. We, we look at that mechanically. Oh, yeah, there's a gift that God gives, and I get it, and, and I respond in faith. It's more than that. Look here. Grace comes to us. Now, I, I want you to get this. I'm not trying to press a theological point too far, but Jerry's right here. Jerry didn't come and get grace. I'm not grace, but no, it does like this. Grace comes to Jerry and takes him by the hand. That's how it works. So we, 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 we think too much of ourselves. But, but grace comes to you. And I want you to get this. And grace came to you. Well, yeah, I, I just decided to become a good person. Okay, whatever. If you're a Christian, it's because... You're saved by a grace that came to you that you did not initiate. 
See, if you get that for a second, you might shed a tear and actually be thankful for your salvation today. See, grace finds us. Well, I was studying and research. I, you are a human. You are a sinner. You are blinded in your sin. There's nothing in you that seeks after Christ. I'm telling you, He comes to you. And I'm not talking about Calvinism or somewhere, something like that. I'm simply saying this. The persistence and will of God looks for you and reaches for you. You respond to what? That's, that's, that's another story. That's a more involved theology there. But I want you to get how Saul became Paul. And we just say with the Damascus Road experience, however you want to describe it, what's on Damascus Road or in this book or here's someone preaching, grace came for you. And it did what you could not have ever done for yourself. Even your seeking was something that God initiated in your own heart. We, there's, we, all, our, all of our righteousness is filthy rags. There's nothing good in any of us. He was saved by that grace. He was saved by and through the name in the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. How is any man saved? Through the name of Jesus Christ, Acts 4.12. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby they must be saved. John 14.6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no man cometh to the Father but by me. You cannot be a saved apart from Jesus Christ in that name. And what He did for us on the cross. And then beyond that, you are saved because grace came to you. John 6.44, no man can come to me. Okay, that's pretty exact, isn't it? No man can come to me except he cometh to me. Okay, let me read it again. I'm reading the wrong verse. No man cometh to me except the Father which hath sent me, these words, draw him. I, I don't understand all that means. Like, that's complicated in a way. It seems so simple. We're trying to make more of it is. I just know this. And the way I went to Jerry, that's what happens. Jerry, you come to me. Okay, you come to me. Unless the Father draws him. There's some stirring in the head, in the heart, in the mind, the soul that God initiates. It's he that quickeneth the soul and the spirit. We don't give regenerative power to ourselves. God gives that to us. The man inside of us is dead. He makes that alive. And so, unless the Holy Spirit is involved, look up here. By the way, that same Spirit that made creation, the same Spirit that parted the waters, the same power of God that made everything it is, unless that power comes to you, you can't be changed. You can't be saved. Salvation begins for all of us because of the initiation of God in our lives. Again, I'm not talking about Calvinism or some predetermined elect, but rather the striving of God's Spirit in our hearts that we respond to. We were dead in trespass and sin, our hearts and minds blinded to the truth, but the Holy Spirit <coughs> speaks to us, He pleads to us, He whispers us, and by His initiation we can respond. Some do, some don't. And in the case of Paul, Jesus came like a hammer and not a whisper. Because of chapter 9, verse 15, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles. But Paul still said, Lord, what will you have me to do? He was, he was still yielded, he surrendered, and he was greatly used. But here's the thought, and I'm going to focus on this. 
If ever there was a man who I would have said, that man, it's an impossibility for him to come to Christ. That ultimate example of inability happened because grace came to him. In other words, it's supernatural in the same way all of our salvation is supernatural. But what is impossible for man is possible with God. And I'm talking about anything and everything you may face in life. But my husband or my wife or my child or this person, this circumstance, this event, these things, just, there's just no way. With man, things are impossible. But when grace comes, when God intervenes, everything becomes possible. Things happen in the Bible that would never come about because of the, the, the work of man, because of argument or reason or intellect. That's why we are told as Christians we're to live by faith, not by sight. Because we, we're going we're gonna to halt at the ledge of impossibility and God's going to say, take a step and let's see what is possible. We're going to look at the water. I could never walk on it. And Jesus is going to say, come to me, Peter. And we're going to walk on it. I could never give and you could give. I could never forgive and you could forgive. I could never love. This person could never be gone. This person could never be saved. And I am telling you, when God is involved and grace is involved, all things are possible. Don't limit the Holy Spirit of God. I don't care what it is. Well, you don't understand. This thing is so past the ability to be healed. You don't know that. If the Lord Jesus Christ in a moment can transform the Apostle Paul's mind, mind and heart, what makes you think he can't reach yours or somebody else's? The battle is the Lord's, not always ours. It's not by our strength or our might, but by his spirit, the Bible says. In Psalm 118, the Bible says, this is marvelous. What the Lord, what the Lord did is wonderful and is marvelous in our sight. It's, it's beyond comprehension. From the Egyptian plagues to the splitting of the Jordan, the Red Sea, Gideon's victories, Hezekiah's, and the nation's salvation by an angel, by a donkey speaking to turn back Balaam, five loaves and two fishes feeding 5,000, a lame man walking, Lazarus and Tabitha, Tabitha raised from the dead, Peter released from prison, and Daniel spared in a lion's den. I'm telling you, there's nothing beyond God's ability to change and manipulate. Not a heart, not a soul, not a mind or a circumstance. You know, we think our salvation maybe was simple and humble, whatever else. I'm telling you behind the scenes, it was a miracle of God that any one of us were saved. If there's something that God wants to do, it can and it, can, and it will be done. Today, if there's a situation you are facing that seems impossible, if someone you love, think of beyond reach or estrayed, Someone you're trying to reach is a hard heart, a child's rebellion, a spouse is struggling. It's not beyond God's reach. Your marriage isn't beyond God's reach. Your children aren't beyond God's reach. The circumstances, your life, and even if God so chooses your health, you just don't know. You can pray. You can believe. You can trust. You can ask God to intervene. And God's ways are higher than our ways, but I'm telling you, He's God. He can do what He wants to do. For all, for all we know, God is already behind the scenes using His goads, bringing someone to a point. Long before Saul got on the Damascus Road, 
Ananias was saved and Barnabas was saved. And God got these guys to come along with him. The Lord had made all the necessary preparations to bring all this down to a, a, a distilled funnel. We're in that blinding moment. There's this incredible backdrop of this work that was done that this seemed to come instantaneously. But God was at work with these goats making something happen and it did. You don't know what God's doing behind the scenes in, in your life or someone else's life. I just know that it's hard to kick against the goads. I remember being a high school educator. I was bent on a course. And you can ask Terry, when I get bent, I get bent. I wasn't the Apostle Paul, but I was entrenched in what I wanted to do. And I was sacrificing to make it happen. I was, our whole family was sacrificing to make this happen. And I was going to do something. And then I, because <laughs> I made the mistake, I came to Eastland Baptist Church and my world turned upside down. Maybe a mistake for, from your perspective, but for me it was okay. And I remember kicking against the goads. Lord, what in the world are you asking me to do? Like, I got my education. I just finished this doctorate. I have all these things I want to. I want to become a professor. I want to be that really nerdy guy. Still, I'm the nerdy guy, but I want to do it this way and make money from it. <laughs> Two years kicked against the goads. Troy, Troy, isn't it hard for you to kick against the goads? And there came a day, I said, well, that's just too hard. And I stepped out in a place I felt like totally unqualified, totally incompetent, had no idea what I was going to do. But I'm telling you, the first time I stepped out there, the Lord met me. And it's just never been the same. You don't know that God's not doing that in the person's life that you think is beyond reach. You have no idea. Someone you've been praying for, a family member, someone. I'm telling you, you don't know what God's doing behind the scenes. When I became pastor, I took on as my, I haven't mentioned this in years, but the theme for the ministry was taken from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3 rather, verse 14. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family of heaven and earth is named, that He would grant you me to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with the might by His Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with the saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth of His height and the height, and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. But then these words, because I, I knew my limitations. Now to Him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. By His power. Eastland Baptist Church isn't built on my abilities or even yours. It's built on His power. Whatever spirit we enjoy, whatever blessings we have seen, it's, it's not, it's Him. My salvation and my life's work, your life work, is, is all about availing ourselves to a power that's beyond ourselves. God could be doing this for people and you don't know. I just know this, a lot was in place before Paul had a Shekinah glory moment. I want you to remember this morning, Matthew 19, 26, with men, your situation, that person, that circumstance, it might seem impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ. I can't do that. No, you probably can't. With God's grace meeting you, you probably can. Through Christ which strengtheneth me. 
Genesis 18, 14, from the very beginning, said, is there anything too hard for the Lord? And this came from the response of a woman who wanted to have a baby who couldn't. Is anything too hard for the Lord? 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your care upon him, for he careth for you. If God cares about you, you're in good shape. You're okay. 1 John 4, 4, greater is he that is in you than the power that is in the world, and maybe even the power in your own heart. Mark 9, 2, Jesus said unto him, if thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. Today, I just want to encourage you with this thought. Believe. Believe. Walk by faith. I don't know what you're facing. Maybe it's praying for someone who needs to be saved. Don't stop. There's a kid who needs to come back home. Don't stop praying. You just don't know what God may be doing. And never, ever underestimate God's ability to change a heart, a mind, or a circumstance. He can do it.